You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. I don't know if you've ever met or know anybody that likes or enjoys uncomfortable situations. There's some people that just thrive on that and think it's funny when people are caught in uncomfortable situations. Uh, Rob at Snowbird, who we support, uh, my roommate from college, he loves uncomfortable situations. Like he tries to create them even when you're in conversations because he just likes to watch people squirm and feel uncomfortable and not know how to handle uh, certain things. There's other people that get super embarrassed even for other people who are embarrassing themselves and get really uncomfortable uh, in awkward situations like that. Today's parable, I think, is uncomfortable. Um, It's awkward uh, because it brings up topics and forces us to think and discuss things that we don't typically like to think and discuss. Um, It's not just a parable about the afterlife. It's a parable specifically about the conditions of the afterlife and what led to those conditions. And even as we evaluate the parable prior to the afterlife, we see the uncomfortableness of someone being in need and not being helped and Uh, just the extreme nature of the need and how um, he was forced to suffer in that. So kind of an awkward, difficult parable to kind of work through because it does bring up things that we don't necessarily like to think about, particularly death and what happens after death. But we're going to try to tackle this in the context of uh, what Jesus was teaching at the time. If you look back at the beginning of Luke chapter 16, You'll remember uh, the parable that Adam McLeod taught us to kick off the series on the dishonest manager, and it was a parable that focused on riches and the handling of riches. And um, we pick up now in verse 14, uh, understanding that it comes on the heels of Jesus teaching about riches and stewardship and how we handle our money. And it says in verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money the exact people that need to hear this message, right, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So, Uh, The Pharisees respond to the teaching. They're ridiculing him. They're rejecting him uh, for what he has to say. Jesus addresses their ridicule, uh, talks about them being individuals who justify themselves. Uh, They love their money. They they don't understand that God knows their hearts better than they do. Um, Talks about their rejection of the law and the prophets and the good news that's being taught now. So the law and the prophets have been taught faithfully up until the time of John. Jesus shows up, and now he's bringing the new covenant into play, and so he's expanding upon the teachings of the law and the prophets, um, and they've rejected it. Uh, Verse 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So not just stewardship of money, but also stewardship of relationships is at play here. And then it brings us to verse 19, which is the parable. It says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades being in torment He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. 
And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Our summary sentence for today, if God's word does not impact us to use our money for more than our own comfort and instead for the hope of others as well, then we should assume we are on a path to eternal torment separated from the riches of his kingdom. If God's word does not impact us to use our money for more than our own comfort and instead for the hope of others as well, then we should assume we are on a path to eternal torment separated from the riches of of his kingdom. For our kids, God's word tells us to use our money not just for ourselves, but for others too. Now, there's a lot of discussion that takes place about things that I think just honestly aren't that important about this, this story. Uh, there's a lot of debate about is it a true story or is it a parable? You'll notice that it's different from the other parables that we've talked about because a, a proper name is mentioned here, right? It's not just a rich man and a poor man, it's a rich man and a guy named Lazarus, which potentially introduces the idea that it's a, a true story, that Jesus is recounting a historical situation that's already happened or maybe playing out right then and there. Um, I don't know that it matters either way because the principles and the truths are valid, whether it's a made-up story, a parable like Jesus has told previously, or if it's a true story. There's also a lot of discussion about what uh, the afterlife is like in regards to how things are introduced here, this concept of uh, the poor man being taken to what's called Abraham's bosom. Um, is this a, a different afterlife than what we hope for today? We talk about going to heaven and being with Jesus. Is this something that was pre-Christ, pre-Christ coming and dying on the cross and raising from the dead? Was hell or Hades basically separated into two compartments where you had the good guys and the bad guys, the, the people who had been faithful, the people who hadn't, they could see each other, but they couldn't get to each other, and then Jesus dies and comes and takes all the people on the good side to heaven. Uh, that may be the case. Uh, I, I think it's probably not a great idea to build uh, big theological ideas off of parables, since there's really a main idea that's going on here, and the main idea is not to introduce us to what afterlife was like pre-Jesus. Again, that could absolutely be how it is. It really doesn't matter, though. What we do know is that believers have always been separated from unbelievers in the afterlife, whether that's always been in heaven with Jesus or whether there was a temporary place prior to until Jesus came and solidified the gospel, satisfied the wrath of God, and ushered us into eternity with him. What is at stake here is really this idea of what our afterlife is going to be like, where we will be, and what we do on this earth in this time now impacts that. The story that's presented here is a heavy contrast between two men, and I think the contrast is meant to be extreme so we get the point. You've got uh, their extreme differences in their earthly lot, how their earthly life went, and also their eternal home. Big differences between these two men. 
You've got one going from riches to begging in the afterlife, one who goes from begging in this life to riches in his own afterlife. One is named Lazarus, which means God helps. The other one is not named. One is poor, one is rich, one is clothed in sores, one is clothed in royalty with the purple. One is scrounging for crumbs, one is feasting lavishly. One ends up next to Abraham, one ends up in torment. It's not the purpose of the parable to give us a thorough, detailed information about how the afterlife works. I don't think that was Jesus' point when he brings up this parable. It's probably not meant to introduce us to a new way of understanding eternity pre-Christ. This idea of Abraham's bosom as being Hades good versus Hades bad. Abraham's bosom most likely, in in my opinion, in in looking at the scriptures and seeing silence about this uh, in other aspects of scripture, it probably is alluding to the prominence that Lazarus enjoys in the afterlife, much like John dining next to Jesus. If you turn to John 13, 23, you'll read about that last supper and, and the one whom uh, loved Jesus and Jesus loved the disciple John is, is basically uh, right there next to Jesus, right right there on his hip. I mean, he, he's right there feasting with Jesus. I think that's the picture that we have here is that Lazarus goes from begging and dying due to lack of food to having the most prominent position that you could think of at that time, sitting right next to Father Abraham, right? The father of the Israelite nation, the father of God's chosen people. Lazarus is sitting right next to him, eating and dining. Um, that, that's the picture, I think. That's the emphasis that's there, not necessarily meant to introduce us to a different understanding of the afterlife. So not the purpose of the parable to, to really hone our attention to what the afterlife is like from that standpoint, but the purpose of the parable is The rich will go to hell if they choose to delight in the world's luxuries only while failing to love God and others. Again, it's an awkward, uncomfortable parable because nobody likes to talk about death, and we certainly don't like to talk about hell when we talk about death, right? Far easier to talk about death and being ushered into eternity, ushered into the glory of God, ushered into eternity with him forever. Much more uncomfortable and awkward and difficult to talk about the other side of the afterlife. Death decay, separation, God's eternal wrath. But that's certainly what Jesus introduces here. He's teaching on the dangers of money, the importance of stewardship, and the Pharisees are rejecting it. That's the context of the parable. Now looking back before he shares this parable, the Pharisees are described as people who love money, who justify themselves when they're called out for being wrong, and typically ignore the teachings of Scripture. Let us not think that we are so far from them, right? The description of the Pharisees here, they love money, they're quick to justify themselves, and they, they typically ignore the teachings of God's Word and don't put enough emphasis on what they say we should do. And that, that's, that's me far more often than I want to admit, right? If I'm not careful, I'm tempted to love money, I'm absolutely tempted to justify myself when somebody says I'm wrong. And I'm far more inclined to to ignore or to minimize the teachings of Scripture than to really buy into what God is calling me to do and going all in to live for Him. There's temptation to not live that way. The Pharisees are guilty of it. They're rejecting what has been presented to them. They're ridiculing Jesus. And Jesus speaks this parable to them to address it. He calls them out and says, look, if things don't change, 
you the rich, because we've talked about how the Pharisees had exploited the system. They were benefiting religiously off the the system of of the the burdens that they were placing upon the people. All of their decision-making was was based around money and love of money. Jesus was having to cleanse the temple because they were were stealing and robbing, right? They had turned his, his, his temple of worship into a place of thieves, and so they were lovers of money for sure, and they were quick to justify themselves to think they were absolutely good enough to be with him forever. Right? No change needed in my life. And because there was no change needed, they would read the scriptures, they would study the scriptures, they were expert in the scriptures. And yet it was having no impact daily when an application, from an application standpoint. Let us not think that we're so distant from being in a similar lot. Jesus wants to expose us in an awkward, challenging, difficult way this morning. He wants us to pause and to consider some important things when it comes to the afterlife and how we're living now and the impact that will have on our afterlife. So let's look at the point number one first. Treat your responses to the word as a life or death issue. We need to treat our responses to God's word as a life or death issue, right? We talk in this term of life or death when we're presented with something or called to something, a request is made, uh, an, an urgent type of thing presented. We, we talk about, is it a life or death thing, Right? We, we use that term in regards to, like, that's the ultimate uh, urgency for us. Life or death issues, that's urgency. That's emergency. That needs our full attention. We don't always think in terms of coming to God's word, prioritizing it in our life, exposing ourselves to it, having time with God daily, regularly, weekly, whatever that may look like for you, but being a person of the word. We don't necessarily consider that a life or death issue, but think about it. Think about what God's word tells us. God's word gives us instructions for how to live life away from sin. We know the wages of sin is death. We know following Christ leads to eternal life. So it is a life or death issue, right? How we respond to God's word, how we seek to obey him, understanding what he calls us to, living out that faithfully in obedience, it is a life or death issue. We need to treat our responses to God's word that way. The Pharisees were hearing it, But instead of responding in obedience, they were ridiculing him. They were ridiculing him. And so it prompted this parable. It prompted this response from Jesus. Number one, the parable should cause us to pause and consider our normal pattern for responding to the word. The parable should cause us to pause and consider our normal pattern for responding to the word. Think back to the parable of the sower and the seed. What is your normal pattern for responding to the word. Do we completely tune it out and miss the word? Right? Some of you are forced to be here. Some of our students, our kids are forced to be here and you can't wait for this to be over with. Right? So you're not, you're not dialed in, you're not focused, you're not attentive. It's just, I got to bear through the next 30 minutes or so and then it's on to lunch and on to what I want to do with the rest of my day. And that's your normal pattern. Like you don't even try to listen. You don't even try to pick up on what we're talking about from God's word. We may have some adults that are like that too. You're here because you feel like you're supposed to be here. You know there's an obligation from from being raised in the South and growing up Christian and being in a church family. Like you're supposed to be here, so you're here. But our normal pattern may be that we just completely tune it out and we dismiss it. Or do we initially feel encouraged in conviction only to quickly forget it due to leaving here and getting busy really quickly, right? I didn't review last week's sermon because we've got enough to do today that I didn't want to take up time. But, but for some of us, we may not even remember what we talked about last week. We may not even remember what God showed us last week. May have been good in the moment, may have been convicting or encouraging in the moment, but man, we left here, we got so busy, and we haven't thought about it since. 
Remember, that's what it looks like to have the word spring up and then to get choked out with the weeds and the busyness of this world. Do we accept it as long as it doesn't impact us too much? Right? Like we're willing to say yes to God's word until it really calls us to change and do things differently. Right? So it, it has a little bit of root, but then it hits that hard ground and, and trials and difficulties and, and the, the actual change that we're called to comes up and we say, no, I'm not interested and it falls away. Do we treat it like our quality of life depends on our application of it? Because it does. Our quality of life on this earth depends on our application of God's word. Jesus says, I've come to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. And it's different than what the world offers. Our quality of life now and later depends on how we respond to God's word. It's his instructions for life. Do we yield to it? Do we prioritize it? Do we treat it as a life or death issue? Number two, the parable should cause us to pause and consider the eternal ramifications of our pattern for responding to the word. The parable should cause us to pause and consider the eternal ramifications of that pattern to responding to the word. So the Pharisees are ignoring the word. We should pause and reflect and say, do I do the same thing? Am I, am I ignoring the word too? It should cause us to ponder the eternal ramifications of our pattern of responding to the word as well. Rich man, poor man, rich man and Lazarus. We, the story's familiar to you. you. You probably didn't learn anything new just by reading through the text today. It's something that we're very familiar with probably, this story of, of the rich man having everything, Lazarus having nothing, the rich man refusing to give him anything, and then in the afterlife, their, their, their fortunes are reversed, right? Their fortunes are reversed. Now Lazarus is living in luxury, and the, the rich man is basically living a tormented life, far worse than what Lazarus experienced here on this earth, right? But Lazarus also experiencing far better than anything that the rich man experienced. So a reversal of fortunes to the extreme in the afterlife. It would obviously be extremely dangerous, extremely false, and extremely heretical to think that rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven, right? Don't mistakenly think that that's what this parable is teaching, right? The parable isn't teaching that rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven because newsflash the poor man is taken to Abraham, who was extremely rich during his life, right? Like that, that's, the, that's the, the hope that we need here is that we can potentially have a lot of the world's goods and still get to heaven. Jesus says it's hard, it's difficult, right? It's not a path of ease for the rich man to get to heaven because there's so many opportunities for distractions. Abraham's a great example of one who was rich with this world, but far richer in the things of Christ, right? Far richer in the things that were important. Job's another example. Joseph of Arimathea is another example, right? There are rich people who get to heaven. So the parable isn't teaching that rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven. Abraham was probably way more rich. Uh, in addition, fast forward into Luke chapter 18 and 19. Jesus is going to be teaching about the dangers of riches. You even have a rich man that comes to Jesus and says, hey, how do I get to heaven? Jesus says, you got to sell everything and follow me. And, the, and it says that the rich man walked away distraught, discouraged. Why? Because he had a lot. He had a lot. And it wasn't that he was overwhelmed with the idea like some of us are when we think about selling our house and moving. Oh, my gosh, i got so much stuff. Like, I'm going to have to pack a lot and get rid of a lot. No, he didn't want to get rid of anything, right? He was in love with his stuff. It says that he walked away. Jesus says, hard for a rich man to get to heaven. But then Jesus says, let me tell you about a rich man who got to heaven, and that's Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus was filthy rich, dishonestly rich, 
and he's radically converted by the gospel, right? So it's not a parable that's trying to discourage us from thinking uh, that we can't have potentially riches in this earth and still go to heaven. Um, The rich man is condemned because of his disregard for God's word, the law and the prophets specifically. He loved his riches more than God. He loved his riches more than God. Verse 16, before the parable starts, Jesus says, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. Everyone forces his way into it, but it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. The Pharisees knew it, but were not doing it. The law and the prophets come up again in the parable when he tries to get Abraham to send people to talk to his brothers. He says, look, they got Moses and the prophets. They've got sufficient special revelation to know what they're supposed to do, right? So there is this idea that uh, how we respond to God's word, I mean, that impacts our eternal life, right? It shapes what happens after this life, how we are responding to God's word. The parable should cause us to pause and consider that. What are the eternal ramifications? Am I okay with eternity being shaped by how I'm currently responding to God's word today? Students, if you're like me, when I was your age, I kept saying, I'll do it later. I'll become a student of the word. I'll be intentional with the Bible later when I have more time in my life, which you don't have more time in your life, right? You will never have more time than you have right now as a single person who doesn't have to work a job, who doesn't have to provide for a family. That is the time you have the most time in your life, right? But I remember being a middle schooler and a high schooler thinking, oh, it's so hard to think about reading the Bible. I'll do that later in life. Do that later in life. Man, pause and consider. Stop and think about this parable and what it says, how we respond to God's word, our faithfulness to God through his word impacts our eternity. Number three, the parable should cause us to pause and consider what we are ultimately rich in. Jesus reminds us that what man values and what God values are very different. Verse 15, he says, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Remember, this is not a judgment against wealth, but it is a reminder of the cautions of wealth, right? That is certainly true throughout scripture. Not that rich people go to hell, but that rich people need to be aware that their riches could possibly be a great distraction that would lead them to hell right? It's a reminder of the cautions. And here's, here's, the, here's the note that we all need to make in our life, regardless of what your current income is. We far more identify with the rich man in this passage than with Lazarus. We need to see that. We need to see that the, the focus of this passage really is on the, the rich man and not being the rich man. Because most of us are never going to identify with Lazarus. Most of us are never going to be in a, in a financial spot like Lazarus. So regardless of your income, we are far more likely to be in a spot like Lazarus where we're tempted to hoard our money, hoard our stuff, and, and really enjoy the pleasures of this world to, to, to such a degree that it completely distracts us from the spiritual. What I must be rich in is to be rich in good works that flow from the riches found in the gospel I have responded to. Let me say that again. What I must be rich in is good works that flow from the riches found in the gospel I have responded to. Look at the message to the rich in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. 
As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so they may take hold of, what is, of that which is truly life. There was a, a phase there for a while where Christian life books were coming out, uh, Crazy Love by Francis Chan, Radical by David Platt, where there was, a, I think, an extreme response that almost was guilt-ridden of, well, I got to just get rid of everything and live a life of poverty if I want to follow Jesus. I don't think that's the case, right? Certainly, there were times when Jesus addressed haughty, rich people who needed to give up some stuff to follow him because they were way too distracted with the things of this world. But passages like this tell the rich people to be generous, right? Willing to share, but to utilize the riches that are given, not as an evil, not as a sin, but for good purposes, to be rich in good works. We need to be rich in good works with whatever money and and resources have been given to us so that we can really seize hold of what is truly life, the passage tells us. To do good with what's been given to us, to certainly enjoy it because it comes from God, but to be generous with it, ready to share, storing up treasures for heaven, storing up treasures in the afterlife. We need to be reminded that we can't serve God and money. Verse 13 reminds us of that back in Luke. We can't serve both. We can't serve our riches and try to serve Jesus. Verse 13 says, No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can certainly be rich in both, but you can't serve both. You can't be friends of the world because that makes you enemies of God. Right? So here's what I would want you to hear from this first part, is that we can absolutely be blessed by God with the things of this world, but we cannot serve the things of this world. We can't cling to the things of this world. As God gives us things in this world, we are to be ready to share, ready to be generous, ready to use those for gospel purposes. For our students, let me encourage you with this. Be cautioned that you do not make decisions solely on how it will impact you financially. And don't make decisions when it comes to what college am I going to go to or what job am I going to pursue, what career am I going to pursue. A lot of times you hear young people talk, this is where I can make the most money. I mean, don't lose sight of the spiritual motivation for the decisions that you make in life, right? I I love to hear when people talk about going off to college that they've evaluated what churches are in the area and where they're going to invest and plug into spiritually as they seek to educate themselves for their life here on earth, right? There's this spiritual perspective of, hey, it can't just be about who has the best business program or who has the best art program or whoever has what best program. There's gotta be a godly church in the area that I can plug into and invest in, right? Don't make decisions about moving your family because this job affords you way more money than your current job if it's gonna wreck your family spiritually. Don't make decisions solely financially, Right? There's caution about money all through Scripture. Be rich in good works. Though what the world tells you to pursue are the very things that God tells us is vanity and dangerous for us. The very things that God tells us to, uh, or the world tells us to pursue are the very things that are dangerous for us. Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. 
Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts about, uh, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Man, let me, let me read that again in the context of a cultural understanding for our youth and our students right now. Let not the wise man boast in his education. Let not the mighty man boast in the position or the job that he'll be able to get with that education. Let not the rich man boast in the riches that come from the degree and the jobs that he chooses. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. And don't get caught up in the things of this world thinking that this is what I have to focus on. You'll lose your soul if you're not careful. Can you, can you pursue a great education and a great job that gets you in a great position where you make a ton of money and still go to heaven? Yeah, you absolutely can. But only if you're serving and following Christ through all of that and God chooses to bless you with all of that. But if that is your focus and pursuit, this parable cautions us, you may end up in hell. You may end up completely separated from him. Treat your responses to the word as a life or death issue. Know the pattern of of how you're responding to the word. Consider the eternal ramifications of it. Pause and consider what you are ultimately rich in. Are you rich in good works? Are you rich in knowing him? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, pierced themselves with many pangs. Young people, hear us today. Hear God's word today. Be careful about pursuing money. People wander away from the faith when they do that. Number two. Treat your riches and relationships in this world with a focus on the one to come. Treat your riches and your relationships in this world with a focus on the one to come. We treat our responses to the word as a life or death issue. Am I responding to God's word faithfully? We treat our riches and relationships in this world with a focus on the one to come. Number one, the parable should cause us to pause and consider the criteria we use for valuing people around us. Be careful how you value people around you because we are tempted sometimes to value them based on how much they're worth. How much they're worth in society, how much they're worth to us and how they can benefit us. This parable reminds us wealth isn't always a mark of God's favor and poverty isn't always a mark of his displeasure. Sometimes it may be. God certainly blesses his people financially sometimes and sometimes there's punishment and judgment for those who are in wickedness and sin and God takes from them. But that's not always the case, right? There are rich people who are far away from God. There are poor people who are right next to God. Be careful about how we value people. Don't use the same value system as the world. The parable should cause us to pause and consider this. The rich man, obviously, living in his wealth and luxury and and eating and and, and dining and enjoying the, the luxuries of this world, completely ignoring people in his life that don't have value to him, who are needy and, and, and need help from him. Those people aren't important to him. The people who can benefit him are the ones that he seems to focus and be attentive towards. Number two, the parable should cause us to pause and consider the needs of individuals we see regularly. The parable should cause us to pause and consider the needs of individuals 
we see regularly. Notice where Lazarus is in this story. He tells the story of a rich man clothed in purple, fine linen. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Most likely, Lazarus was placed outside of the gate intentionally with the hope of getting help from the rich man. You read in Acts chapter 3, some of the disciples are coming into an area of the city, and it talks about a, a, a broken, uh, poor, uh, helpless individual being put there so that he could ask for money, right? People that need money are usually strategic about where they place themselves, where there's going to be a high volume of traffic of people that can help, Right? This guy is here intentionally. He doesn't live outside the gate of the rich man. He is there because he believes the rich man has the capability of helping him, right? That's intentional. Instead of being helped, though, he's utterly neglected in his helplessness and receives more compassion from the dogs than the rich man's house, right? You've got this gross picture of the dogs coming and licking his sores and and trying to bring some level of healing. They're getting some enjoyment out of that for whatever that is, right? But they are giving more compassion to him. They're spending time with him when the rich man has no regard for him. I couldn't help but think, um, it was about three years ago when we were in John chapter 5, Remember when we had the, the, the invalid man who needed help and he was sitting by the, the pool of Bethesda and he's trying to get in the pool because he thinks it has magical waters, but nobody will put him in in time. Um, and so he keeps missing out. Since he's been in this condition for like 38 years, we don't know if he was sitting there for 38 years or if he's just, been, if he's just 38 years old. More than likely though, he's been sitting there for a long period of time and the Pharisees have come and gone, passed to and fro and seen him and never helped him. Jesus shows up. Remember, we talked about the fact that Jesus had seen him for years, too, because he had come to Jerusalem as a kid and had been coming every year since. Jesus had seen him. Jesus waits to heal him intentionally when? On a Sabbath day, right? And the Pharisees are enraged. How dare you heal on a Sabbath day? Jesus really wants to respond and say, how dare you not help this man after 38 years of him sitting here, right? And don't miss that, that there are people in our life, right? This isn't necessarily an appeal to go to downtown Atlanta where you maybe never go and start just handing out from your savings account to help people. There, there may be a place for that. But I think the more direct application is don't miss the people that are regularly, daily in your life that you're oftentimes so busy that you miss who could really use your help, even if it's not financially, and there are people in our life that we see daily. I've shared with you before, there's a couple of guys at Trinity that, that are special needs that work there. And if I'm not careful, I get so busy that I just blow right by those guys and pay them no attention. They would love for people to sit and talk to them all day long. They love conversation with people at Trinity. I try to be intentional to pause and stop and reflect and treat these individuals with the conversation they desire when I'm, tipi- when I'm, when I'm typically so busy that I just want to walk right by them. Don't miss the people that are in your life that are right there, that are, that are human beings, image bearers of God. Don't miss them in your busyness. There are people in your life that need your help potentially. Again, maybe not financial, but just need you investing in them. The, the, the rich man knew Lazarus. He knew he was sitting at his, at his gate and he did nothing for him. We know that he knew him because in the afterlife, he identifies him, right? He recognizes him. He looks into this, 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 past this chasm and sees Abraham and sees Lazarus and says, hey, send that guy Lazarus to come help me. How presumptuous of him to do that when he didn't help Lazarus himself, right? But he knows him by name, knows him by facial recognition. I know that guy. That's the guy that was sitting outside my gate. 
He indicts himself by knowing him, knowing his name, and we know that he did nothing to help him. Did nothing to help him. Let this parable cause you to pause and consider the needs of individuals that are right there daily. You see them potentially regularly. Don't miss opportunities to serve and love. Number three, the parable should cause us to pause and consider how we are using our stuff. Again, you may not consider yourself rich, but you certainly have stuff that need to be used. And we have a responsibility to use it for his glory. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 7. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say the seventh year of the year of release is near and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing and he cry to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. The idea being there, don't, don't look to the, the parameters that God had put in place where debts were going to be canceled and think, oh, I don't want to help him right now because this debt's about to get canceled and I'll never get it back. He says, be willing to be generous, be willing to help those who are in need. You shall give to him freely. Your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and all that you undertake, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. You can read in James chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, and 1 John 3, 16 through 18. Both those passages talk about the need that we have to be generous with the stuff that's been given to us. James would even go as far to say, the authenticity of your faith should be questioned if you do nothing to help another when there's physical needs. John says, it's inconsistent to say you love God and not help someone who's in need around you. Our use of wealth in relation to the needs of our neighbors reveals much about our coming eternal state. If we are truly Christians and we believe his word, then our faith will affect the way we use our wealth. If it doesn't, we're not true believers. Let me say that again because that's a life or death comment. That's a life or death issue. If we are truly Christians and we believe his word, then our faith will affect the way we use our wealth. If it doesn't, we are not true believers. Because if it doesn't impact, we are just like the Pharisees who were lovers of money and justified themselves for the way they were living and they ignored the law and the prophets and they said no to Jesus. They ridiculed him instead of responding to his message. Number four, the parable should cause us to pause and consider God's intimate awareness for his people particularly those often forgotten. Again, while I don't think necessarily the, the, the major emphasis of this parable is on Lazarus as much as it is on not being the rich man, don't lose sight of the intentional divine care given to one who would have had no value in society at that time. He dies, and look what it says happens to him. He was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. I mean, he gets like a royal entourage carrying him right next to Abraham. So while we may not identify with the poor man from a financial standpoint, unless something tragic happens in our life, there may be times where we feel unimportant and forgotten in this world. As we're seeking to live for Jesus, we're trying to be that faithful servant that we saw in a parable several weeks back, but we get no credit for it. No parties are ever thrown for us, no celebrations. I mean, the Lord knows us. The Lord knows us intimately. When we die, he is ready to usher us up to him forever. Forever. Now, I don't know that we're all getting angels coming and taking us or not. I don't know if that's how it works. Again, this is a parable probably, so maybe not 
uh, normal pattern for what happens. But maybe so. Maybe our souls are grabbed by angels and ushered. Maybe that's part of what angels do. I don't know. I think the point is for sure that the Lord knows us intimately and knows exactly where we belong, even if the world has missed what we are rich in. Pause and consider that. Number five, the parable should cause us to pause and consider how worldly investments in this life don't carry over in the life to come. They don't carry over. Rich man, uh, I mean, he's got, he's got everything he can eat. He's got all the fine clothing. I mean, he has got everything. He dies and none of it matters, right? None of it matters. And yet he continues to act like a rich man in hell. He seems to presume on his normal pattern for getting what he wants and starts calling for Lazarus to serve him and to bring him relief. And it's like he fully expects it to get answered. He desires the very thing that he refused to give Lazarus during their lives. What does Abraham say? He says, you've already received the relief that you will ever get. You've gotten all of it. And unfortunately, it came in the life that has now been lost. Mark eight thirty six says, if we're not careful, we will lose our life. We'll gain this world, but we will lose our life. Look what Luke six twenty four says. Jesus commenting in a similar way on this idea. Luke six twenty four, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. That's exactly what Abraham tells this rich man. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Pause and consider how worldly investments in this life don't carry over. They don't carry over. Number six, the parable should cause us to pause and consider how the conditions of the afterlife will be set and cannot be altered. This, I do think, gives us an indication of the afterlife that we do need to pay attention to, that the distance between God's people and God's enemies will be such that an impact by either on the other can never happen. Let me say that again. The distance between God's people and God's enemies will be such that an impact by either on the other cannot happen. The gulf of correction is too great to cross. Once we are with God, we are always with him. Once we are separated from God, we will always be separated from him. There's no trading places. There's no going back and forth. There's no speaking to each other. There's no changing conditions. When death happens, it is done. It is permanent. And we need to consider the life and death ramifications today. Are we yielding to God's word? Are we submitted to King Jesus? Rich man had gotten all the relief he was ever going to get. Just happened to be in the wrong world. Number seven, the parable should cause us to pause and consider the conversations we want to have with loved ones now while we have the chance. We're almost done. We only have nine of these, so two more. The parable should cause us to pause and consider the conversations we want to have with loved ones now while we have the chance. And he says, I want to warn my brothers. I want to tell them about this place. They don't want to come here. There's no option for him to send messages from the afterlife. There's no option to send them from, from heaven or hell. Right? So once we leave this world, there won't be conversations we can come back and have with people here. Once people leave this world, there's not conversations that we can have once they're gone. And just pause and consider that right now. If there's conversations that haven't been had that you know you would want to have in the afterlife, now's the time to have them. While those people are alive and while you're still alive. Because you can't have them once it's done. Pause and consider that. Number eight. The parable should cause us to pause and consider the sufficiency of God's word and the lack of excuses we have for ignoring it. Remember, the Pharisees, they're great at justifying themselves, and the rich man is subtly trying to justify himself and saying, 
my brothers need more than what's been given to them. The law and the prophets aren't enough. This guy was obviously religious enough because he's calling Abraham his father. He's kind of dialed into the religious piece. He's Jewish. He, he's, he's considering himself a, a, children, a child of Israel, right? But he's saying, look, we need a miracle to happen for them to really get, for their attention to be grabbed and for them to respond uh, in, in salvation. And he says that they don't need that. Like the word is sufficient. The revelation of God's word is sufficient for salvation. Additional miracles, including resurrections, are not needed to validate any further what God has already said and demanded. I didn't see any commentators mention this, but um, I couldn't help but wonder, did Jesus intentionally use the name Lazarus to further indict the Pharisees because they had already rejected a man named Lazarus and his resurrection? Right? We don't have it in Luke, but you go to John, Lazarus, Jesus' friend, is raised from the dead, and they want to kill people about it. Right? Doesn't do anything to validate the law and the prophets in their mind. Doesn't do anything to draw them to Jesus. In fact, it incites them to want to kill Lazarus and Jesus to stop all the resurrection talk. We certainly today, everybody sitting here, we have no excuses that we'll be able to use in the afterlife as to why we didn't respond. We have the complete Bible, and we have the resurrection of Jesus. At this point in time, Jesus hasn't even come back from the dead. But even his resurrection doesn't bring about salvation for some. They continue to reject. Number nine, the parable should cause us to pause and consider how the doctrine of hell should keep us living the faith rather than leaving it. I mean, we're quick to believe in the reality of heaven. Even the lost world believes in the reality of heaven, right? Like, but they may not believe in anything else about the Bible, but you talk to most people, they believe in heaven, and they believe they're going. And a lot of people don't want to believe anything about hell. It's funny because the source of truth that gives us all the information we have about heaven is exactly where we find hell lined up next to it, right? In fact, Jesus talks more about hell than he does heaven, and yet we want to dismiss it so quickly. We want to erase it and make it go away, and it's not true, and God wouldn't function that way. We can't deny the reality of hell and believe Jesus because he spoke so much about it. It's us not knowing God rightly. Because if we go back to Exodus, which we'll get a chance to together soon, Exodus tells us he's a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, but will by no means clear the guilty. Right? He will bring justice. Now, he's made provision that justice can th come through the sacrifice of Jesus. But if we reject the sacrifice, we will bear the consequences. We will bear the punishment. We will endure the torment. Pause and consider that today. The application for us is to pause and consider all of this now before it's too late. Pause and consider the implications of this parable. You had people who loved money, who had money, who were quick to justify and excuse their actions as being good people and didn't really buy into thinking that God's word was that important. If we're not careful, we're the same people. Pause and consider what this parable speaks to us today. God may give us a whole lot of riches here on this earth. We can't live for them. We can't trust in them. The message to the rich and to the haughty is to be generous and to share, to not cling to it, to pay attention to the needs around us and to seek to meet those needs. This is the message that the graves would speak to us if they could. If people could come back from the dead, this is the message they would give to us. So treat it that way. We've been called to ponder and to think about some important things this morning. Let me challenge you to do that 
as we leave today. God, we love you. We thank you and praise you for your goodness to us. Thank you for seeing fit to share this message and to preserve it for over 2,000 years so we could read it and study it today. Lord, help us to see the tragedy of this story, a rich man who had everything, who could have given very little and radically changed a man's life and still chose not to. God, help us to see that in the afterlife, things were greatly reversed. One man's response to God's word led him into riches untold. One man's failure to respond to God's word stole everything from him. Lord, help us to pause and consider the truths of this parable today. Help us to stop justifying ourselves. Help us to fall out of love with our money. Help us to take your word seriously. Help us to see that eternity is shaped by that. Thank you for sending Jesus who cleanses us from our sin, who cleanses us from our love of money, who cleanses us from our failure to care for others like we should. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that has never responded in, in obedience to you, putting their faith and trust in you instead of the things of this world, call them to that today before it's too late. For those of us that are believers, God, remind us that you've placed us here on this earth to live for you, to use the things that you give to us for your glory. Empower us to do that as we leave today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.